All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have two very special guests. They both published and wrote a book together, a book that was published in April of 2021. Uh, their names are Rob, Ron Shepesuk, and Jesus Ruiz Hanau. And the title of their book is The Real Mr. Big, How a Colombian Refugee Became the United Kingdom's Most Notorious Cocaine Kingpin. So they're both here with me today. And this is not uh, Ron's first book. He's actually written many other true crime books. Titles of some of those are Superfly, The True Untold Story of Frank Lucas, American Gangster. Also, Drug Lords, The Rise and Fall of the Cali Cartel. Sergeant Smack, The Legendary Lives and Times of Ike Atkinson, Kingpin, and His Band of Brothers. The Traffic Contes, Godfathers from Tampa, Florida. The Mafia, the CIA, and the JFK assassination. Robin Hood of the Hood, The Life and Times of Teddy Rowe. Policy King, Gangsters of Harlem, the gritty underworld of New York City's most famous neighborhood. So he's done a lot of writings on this subject. This is a fascinating book. I finished it today. Uh, really a remarkable story that I had not heard before. So uh, I'm going to let Ron kind of talk about his background and how this, the inception of this book, The Real Mr. Big, began. So Ron Chepesuk, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Right. You pronounced it great. Great, okay. great pronunciation. Yeah. Um, uh, the book's really started in um, May 2017 when I got an email um, from um, Jesus's um, uh, daughter and she introduced herself and she said that uh, her father was uh, in prison at the time and he was getting out and he wanted to know if I would collaborate, if I'd be interested in collaborating on his autobiography. And she sent me about five links and um, uh, to articles about her, uh, her father and uh, I didn't know anything about uh, Jesus. Uh, and so I started reading about him and it was really amazing. Uh, you know, MI6, the British intelligence agency said that, uh, that uh, you know, he was the first billion pound cocaine kingpin in UK history. Uh, another official uh, described him as the Pablo Escobar of uh, United Kingdom drug trafficking. We know who Pablo Escobar is, right? On that sort of stuff. And um, another article had uh, when he was he was arrested, uh, the the price of cocaine shot up fifty percent, <laughs> which uh, you know told you something about his control over the market. So I got, of course, I got interested, and I said uh, I'd be interested in talking uh, to Jesus about this. And so um, uh, he was in prison, and uh, he called me, and uh, we discussed it. And um, I sent uh, uh, his daughter emails, and we left it there. And he was supposed to get out. Uh, pretty quickly after I talked to him, but for some reason, uh, the um, his release was um, delayed and it kept delaying. And, and so a couple of years went by and I was wondering if he was really going to be released on that. And then one day I got a letter, uh, email from his, from his daughter and said, uh, he's getting out October 10th, uh, 2019. And uh, uh, he'll uh, contact you when he gets settled in Colombia. Uh, he's been in prison 18 years. So um, I waited and, uh, and uh, we made contact and uh, we agreed that I would go down to Colombia to interview him uh, for about a week. I would, I would uh, uh, hang out with him for a week and get his story. And uh, so I went down there and this was just around when COVID was starting to make the news. This was like in late January of, uh, of, last, of uh, last year. And uh, uh, didn't think too much about it. I went there. Uh, we had a good, good session, uh, several hours of interviews. I came back and then COVID hit, <laughs> it hit really bad. And so it cut off all travel. Um, I couldn't travel to Colombia. 
but we had uh, uh, you know the internet and uh, and uh, Jesus like like to write about a story, so uh, we took it from there. And uh, I did the I did the um, uh, book proposal, um, and uh, uh, that was it. I mean, the, nobody was buying anything. It was really tough because everybody was just waiting for this COVID thing to uh, to uh, subside. And uh, finally, uh, I got uh, Wild Blue Press that, that was still accepting manuscripts and all that, and uh, they got excited about the book, and um, we agreed to uh, to sign a contract. And um, and I spent about uh, four. It took. Really, uh, a minimal amount of time. I, uh, it's amazing. I took about four four months to write the book, and uh, I had nothing really else to do because I was I was home confined by the COVID virus, and so it made me very productive. And so we got the book done, and um, and then it came out April twentieth, and right. uh, we've been uh, doing publicity uh, since then. And so yeah, it's a really fascinating story. Can you talk about, or maybe Jesus can talk about? His growing up in Colombia and uh, how that influenced him and, and made his his experiences in the UK happen. Can you talk about really the foundation of the book? Jesus could talk, and I can add some stuff uh, after. Go ahead, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. Can you talk about that? Uh, you're growing up in Colombia and the experiences yeah. and the. Uh, Violence yeah. and things that influenced you. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm I'm born in a in a big family. I'm born in a in a small in, in a small town in a small village, very close to the mountains, called Trujillo in Colombia. Then I went to primary school. Um, from there, um, from from very early ages. I saw the cocaine production, um, fabrication of cocaine in the farms. Um, and after that, I moved to a, a main city called Pereira. And from there, I met I met some friends, and I started to talk to them about business, uh, everything, and, and I saw many people making money in the cocaine business, and that was very popular. In the early 80s, mid-80s in Colombia, um, people was going around in expensive cars, flashing money, every everything. And then um, I tasted the business. And I say, and I, and I say to myself, I need, I need, to, I need to, to, to get into the business. I need to, to, to do something. And then I make a couple of friends. Jose and Pedro, and um, I become very good friends with them. Um, always we had to play together, play football, play like the young, young boys play. And um, always we was talking how to, to start a business, how to start uh, doing something. Um, from some reasons, one of, the, of, the, of the, my friends got the idea to travel to Europe, to try to meet some, some people in Europe to get our business expand into Europe. And that is how I started. Right. So you kind of came up, but you were in your 20s when all that violence was taking place with uh, Carlos Leder and Pablo Escobar and things like that. So you had kind of seen that and you saw the wealth that was being generated. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw, the, I saw, I saw then... Pablo Escobar was very popular at, the, at that time in Colombia, and even Carlos Leder. 
Sicily, and that's kind of where it all started, eventually ending up in the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's correct. But uh, um, I was looking into the United States, but I saw and I, and I, and I was aware how the DAA was very powerful in Colombia and how they managed to catch anyone in Colombia. They had the power, and I was really scared of them. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, and, and, and on top of that, USA was the market for the car, for the big cartels. The Medellin cartel and Cali cartel were already already working there. They already had the market. There was no place for, for someone who wants to start a new business. It was a saturated, uh, saturated market. Uh, it was dominated by the Medellin cartel and to a lesser extent, uh, the Cali cartel. So it was a business decision. And uh, I think it was, um, you know, if you're, if you're a gangster and you want to start a criminal en- enterprise like uh, cocaine trafficking, I think it was uh, smart to go to an untapped market. And at that time, you know, the, the cocaine market was really virginal in, uh, in the British, uh, British Isles. And uh, there was no competition there. And uh, uh, that gave uh, opportunities for uh, Jesus to uh, uh, grow his business. And the demand wasn't as strong when he was starting out. And also, he was not affiliated with the two major cartels. Is that correct? Right, right. Yeah, he, he was more uh, in line with um, the Norte Valley cartel, which is the third third cartel, uh, which at that time was very small. You know, it wasn't really developed. And they played um, uh, sec- second fiddle to the, the two big, powerful cartels, the Cali and the, uh, and the Medellin cartel. So how did your enterprise really start and, and expand in the UK? Mm, I started to look at the market, especially in, in Spain. But um, at that time, Spain was already ready, ready. The market was already done by many, many Colombians in Spain because of the, of the easy of the language. And um, and then I went to Barcelona, but my main, my main meeting was with a person from the Sicilian Mafia in Italy. And, and that person introduced me to, to a friend of his, an Ital- Italian man that was, that was a, half a restaurant in London. And then I flew to London, and from there I met them, and from there I started in the UK. Yeah. Uh, Jesus was really young when this happened. He was in his yes. early early twenties, which is quite amazing, you know, to leave. Uh, you know, he was essentially a peasant uh, boy, and uh, he left. He left uh, Colombia, went all the way to Italy, and ended up in in England and uh, brokered um, an arrangement, which uh, started him off in uh, in uh, cocaine trafficking. And it started as kind of a smaller business, but uh, uh, demand was met supply. Would you agree with that uh, in greater and greater amounts? Yeah, I just started very small. 
very small, even even selling selling grams, ohms, things like that. Um, slowly, slowly, uh, we was building money, and then we managed to start uh, uh, getting five keys, 10, 20 keys at the time. And at the end, yeah, when we have uh, plenty of money, we started to 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 send 300 keys or one ton at the time. Right. So yeah. it was just increasingly large. But you, and I think in your book, you said you really didn't have a problem selling all that. Is that correct? So the demand was there all throughout the UK. Yes. I've had ne I never had any problem to get in there or to sell in the drug there. That was going so easy. And the, the, authorities, the, the British authorities were so, so, so relaxed or so laid down in this kind of crime at that time. Now they, they, they are a lot better. And you distributed it through different groups. I found it interesting. It seemed like you had an African-American distribution area, the Freemasons, which I thought was remarkable, mm -hmm. in different places where the drugs went. Can you talk about that? Mm, yes, I have I have some kind of distribution and like that, especially in the, when 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 anything arrived in the, in the UK, I've sent it to the Colombians or to the British gangsters. And we had a distribution in, in every major city of the UK. One of the interesting things I found in your book was that you didn't have trouble selling, but you had trouble taking care of the money that you made. Can you talk about the problems you had with the money and how to launder that? Yeah, when the, when the, when the drug arrived, that was so easy. To, to to get away when the, then because the people buy them straight away and the drug disappear in the same day, but money is really hard because money start coming 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 every day and it's, and they make a big bulk and for and and on top of that money always left left um, left signals through the banks through the system anywhere is is left 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 left, left any signal. Right. And there was big quantities of money to carry around. And to laundry the money, I had to use many people or many different companies. But always is something to get there that is easy to be found by the, by the investigators. The, uh, the, the British authorities, uh, like the American authorities, got, got smart and they instituted laws. And uh, if you uh, were moving more than 500 pounds at a time, um, out of the country, you had to uh, you had to rec uh, record it with the government and all that. So Jesus used a system where he, he would keep it under 500 pounds, right? But he needed a lot of people because he was dealing in millions of, of pounds. Um, and uh, so at one time, he estimated that he had maybe as much as 20,000 people <laughs> laundering. Right, and he was he was sending small amounts through the gram or those yeah. uh, money grams, right? Yeah, right, 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 and they would hire these people in Colombia, pay them a little bit, and they they would you know get get the money and uh, and uh, 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 you know give it to the you know the, the contacts associates that uh, that Jesus was working with in uh, in Colombia. And one of his strategies was really try to stay under the radar, so he never really used technology or phones. I found that interesting. Can you talk about how? He tried to fit into British life and keep a low profile. 
Right. He, he never had a. He never. The interesting thing about Jesus is that he never really had a big ego, and that's one of the big downfalls. A lot of these gangsters. If you look at Escobar, right? Escobar thought he was bigger than the state at one time, and he took on the state. Started off with narco terrorism. Um, the same thing with the Cali cartel. They became too big, and they, and they you know they try to hide themselves. But Jesus, uh, uh, you know, was willing to take a back seat. Um, he, he never liked to meet with, with people that uh, he was dealing with. He'd always send somebody else on that. Um, if he was partying, uh, somebody else would pick up the tab, not him. And uh, it worked. You know, it worked for, for a long time. And initially, he was a bus driver. He kind of had uh, more laborer-type jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he worked mm -hmm. in an office, uh, restaurant, uh, bus driver. And it was that when he was working as a bus driver that, that he finally broke with um, his, his day job because it got so bad. You know, he was handling calls on the job <laughs> from people that wanted, uh, wanted uh, uh, to make a deal with him. But he was clever, too, because he used tra those strategies you talked about. But nobody he was the front man for Mr. Big. He was never Mr. Big. Right. 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 Can you talk about some of those things you did, Jesus, to kind of avoid um, the authorities? Um, I don't know. Since, since early ages, especially the, in, the, in the farms where I grew up, I saw that the technology is the easiest way to get, to, get, um, to get noticed when you're doing something. Right, so you didn't, you never used that okay, technology. The attention. And for that reason, um, I try not to use any mobile phones. I try to use contact, um, contact face to face, mm -hmm. but never, never when the people who I used to work, I always use um, a, um, a woman, a prostitute between the, and she was the, she was like the, the, the messenger. She, she, she will travel from Colombia or from Spain or from wherever where necessary to where I was, get into the hotel, give me a ring, and I will pick up her. And even the police was checking on them, and they found that they were real. They were prostitutes working in somewhere, some in some different places. Yeah. Hey, Susan. Um, and whenever I get the message, I get the message straight from the person who was doing the deal with me into my hands. No any telephone communication. No one no in the middle was aware what's going on. What was the number of the container? What was the how many kilos with the day, time, nothing like that. Yeah. He still kept a very middle class existence. Uh, he lived in a place called Herndon and uh, kept a very low profile. Uh, with his credit cards, with his spending, and well, uh, he paid his mortgage. Yeah, he, yeah, he paid his mortgage, and you know, uh, he 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 got involved with charities. Uh, you know, he had an orphanage in um, in Colombia, which he supported, and uh, he looked like a regular pillar of the community. And um, so, I mean, he advanced, and I mean, he was making millions and millions of dollars. I mean, at a certain point that laundering is tough. I mean, it was hard to believe that those safe houses were like banks for him, that uh, he had trouble kind of like some of these other cartel members of, of finding what to do with the money. How did he kind of try to adapt to that and uh, 
Yeah, it's just a very interesting problem to have. I guess you hired this guy, Carlos Coronado, an expert money launderer. What was his right. techniques to launder the money? Yes, uh, I, I hired us on money launderers. And they, they used to get the money from my people in London. And they used to get the money to, 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 to where they needed to get the money, to a place, to a bank, to whenever. And then they will send the money back to Colombia. And in Colombia, I will go the big people and Sanem, Sanem bodyguards, a lot of bodyguards to pick up the money and take the money to give it to the, for the, to arrange the next parcel or to pay for any debt. Because sometimes when we get, when we get the, the delivery there, we, for example, we, we got 300 keys, we paid 200, but we still had to pay another 100. And when the money, we raised the money, we send the money back, and we all the money go around from one hand to another. It's a lot of people to be paid. At the end of the day, it's a lot, a lot of people get involved in the business. And how many people did you have working for you um, while you were in the United Kingdom? I think you said it was, what, 75 or 100? So you had a substantial kind of payroll, is that correct? People who I used to meet then uh, directly, I know they directly, about 14, 20 people. But uh, I used to have about 50 to 70 people in UK. And not, not, not everybody, anybody could work for it with Jesus. Uh, he operated like a CEO of a major corporation, which he was. He was making millions of dollars. And uh, he would do everything that a CEO would do. He'd, have, um, he'd um, uh, check these people out. You know, go to their neighborhoods, check out who who they hang out, what kind of people they were. They literally had to send in a resume, you know, and uh, 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 that kept, you know, that kept his organization really tight. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, eventually you became noticed by the authorities. Is that correct? And that's when, yeah. <laughs> can you talk about kind of how you, that cat and mouse game, commenced and, and continued. So you get the question, please. I just mean like once the the UK authorities realized that you might be involved in this ring, like they started taking uh, taking it apart. Like some of your associates got arrested. And so what did you try to do to try to avoid the, uh, the legal authorities? Um, I stopped. I even stopped doing doing business and I get out of the business for 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 very long time for over eight months because I knew um, I realized they were on me and I knew because some people around around me were arrested and uh, and I was aware because from one of the one of the person who was arrested I get a message from another person saying that he became a grass. And, uh, and I was aware that the police were on me at that time. I stopped everything. But unluckily, uh, some people who, who, who wanted to work, they tried to, they tried to put a little bit of pressure, trying, trying to keep working. And that bring more heat on me, and the police was on me till they get, the person who do, they get arrested for money laundry, and the man became a super grass. And then the police gave all the evidence against me. Right. So supergrass is a known, it's a term, it's a British slang term for an informant right. who gets turned for the government. Yeah. So the the uh, the problem is um, 
uh, law enforcement is always slow. You know, when they, when they start off the investigation, they're really behind, really behind, and the criminals have the advantage. But in, in Jesus's case, uh, they really applied the resources to his case. They had over 250 individual law enforcement officials working on his case. And sooner or later, they catch up. They catch up. They get the informants. You know, they find uh, money. They, they do all kinds of things. And they catch up with him. And that's what happened uh, to Jesus. And he got out of the, of the business, you know, and he, he could actually say that he walked away. But by then, it, it was too late. You know, they, 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 uh, the investigation had caught up to his criminal activities. And uh, it was just a matter of time. And if you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's just a matter of time before, um, uh, before they uh, uh, put the screws on him and, uh, and took him down. Right, and I said that they arrested his chemist. Can you explain what you used the chemists for, Jesus? Like, I thought that was a fascinating aspect of it. What did you use these chemists for, and how did you have them involved in the shipment of the drugs? How I get the shipments of the drugs? Yeah, yeah, well, the, yeah well, how were the chemists involved? You had you had the chemists. Uh, they impregnated yeah. the impregnated the clothing, you know, and um, they had to they had to extract the uh, the cocaine from um, the material in which they was embedded. Impregnating the in the in the clothes and in the plastic. Plastics, right? So you yes. had to have a chemist get all that out at a safe house for what three or four days, right? So they were exactly. an essential part of the trafficking. Were these? Yeah. chemists that you had and they were the ones who got eventually they were arrested too right yes mm -hmm. and uh so you i think it was 2003 that you were trying to kind of retire and get out and then that kind of uh there was 250 people trying to get you arrested what happened then <laughs> That was impossible, no. At, at that time, I was aware that they were on me, but at the same time, I was I was thinking that they didn't have enough evidence against me because there was uh, there was no fingerprints on any cocaine, nothing. I was not around any anywhere, and I was not meeting the people who were working for me. And um, for that reason, I was I was really relaxing. Uh, I was thinking, no, they don't. They they, they may they may have a, a suspicious, but no evidence, no strong evidence against me. But they were um, back in my car, and I was talking too much. And I believe my my tongue was the one who put me in prison. That was the strongest evidence. So they had they were following you all the time, going to bars, following you around your house. They were trying yeah, to they were following me all the time. I noticed them on the street. I noticed them drinking coffee. I noticed them even in the, in, in in my neighbor house. I saw I saw I saw police around in plain clothes. But it's easy to notice when someone is looking at you or someone is is following you. It's very easy. They were looking every see for a few months. Um, and the, 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 the week, the day, the day I was arrested, I was in Spain and I was thinking not to going back to, 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 to UK. I was thinking to go and travel to Brazil where is no extradition. 
Um, but I don't know, for some reason, I travel to the UK, I pick up the flight, I wait to UK, I arrive about 10, 10 o'clock evening, and as soon as I arrive, I noticed that the police were waiting for me. A lot of plain clothes police, uh, couples somewhere, somewhere, and I say this to, and I say to myself, it's too much people looking to, to my side. And I just pick up the phone and I call my wife and I say, listen, they are here waiting for me. I know they are on me, but nothing I can do because I cannot pick up the flight back because they will not allow me. And I went home and next day, four o'clock in the morning, they smashed my door. And that was it. That was November 27th, 2003. Exactly. And, uh, they pretty much tried to, I mean, you had a lot of your associates um, that were arrested as well. Is that correct? So they had, they arrested what, 40 or 50 people as well? About 34, about 34 people. Uh, eventually there was something like 317 years um, that that were given out in prison sentences. And there was about, there was about 34, uh, 34 people in his organization that were, that were related to his, his um, criminal activities that were, were arrested. And he kind of became, I mean, he's had his family members were murdered too. So it was very rough and dangerous. Uh, and he actually became friends with Jeremy Corbyn too, yeah. said, which is interesting, before he kind of became the head of the Labor Party. Yeah. And uh, can you talk about what happened after you got arrested, Jesus? Yes. After I got arrested, a few months later, uh, my, my, my brother, my... My youngest brother, my brother, when he was he was working for me, he was controlling part of the of the, the 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 person who was controlling the money in Colombia. He was the the the, the trust the trust person who I used to they say how much money there, how counting the money and everything. And soon I was arrested. He was a murder in Colombia. He was killing, and he was in a corner in a coffee shop having a coffee when um, a motorcycle, two, two sicarios coming in a motorcycle and um, bullying him, killing him. But all things was on her through the year was all about the money because he had some, he had some, some stash, um, about 250,000 pounds in his house. Uh, for that reason, he was murdered because as soon as he was murdered, the money disappeared, and they and they and they and his home was uh, ransacked. Uh, Jesus had his own problem with the Sicarios. There's a chapter, chapter three in there, where uh, he he had to leave the country or he would have been dead. They were going to kill him, and um, that's one of the reasons why he left. You know, for the United Kingdom, for his own safety and his family's safety. And it was hyper violent. I mean, the eighties and nineties it kind of cooled down over time, but that was a super yeah. violent uh, yeah. decade yeah. for sure. Yeah, Colombia was just incredible. Um, uh, we heard the term nar narco terrorism, right? That was Escobar's uh, gift to uh, Colombia. That's what he started. He started this campaign against the state. He thought he was bigger than the state, and uh, he took on the state. And um, eventually, he was um, in nineteen ninety three. He was uh, he was uh, uh, hunted down and uh, and killed on that, but uh, uh, it was like a war zone. It was like it was like Iraq. 
in the uh, 80s. I know because I, I went there and um, uh, I knew people that um, that had people that died, that were killed, you know, in, in the wrong place at the wrong time, or they were involved with something that uh, nobody liked them. Kidnappings, uh, you could get kidnapped for $25, you know, and uh, I knew it's a woman like that- It's much like Jesus's life is marred by a lot of violence too. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Jesus is that he didn't like to carry a gun. You know, he didn't believe in violence. Right, Jesus? I don't, I don't. I, I, I was told that, and I was thinking by, by my father that to make money, to make, to do business, you don't need to go around killing people. And for that reason, I, I will concentrate. Uh, and that was, I think, so one of the main reasons I, I like the UK because in United Kingdom, it's not that at that time, um, uh, make, uh, late 80s, early 90s, no any police officer was carrying a gun. Now, after the 9-11, they are carrying a gun. But before, none of them, none of them. And I say, people in here had no guns. That was a very good one of the, of the, the good things. Right. And so your court case, you ended up, getting 17 years and spent the first six years in complete isolation. So that was, uh, I mean, can you talk about what you experienced in the UK jails? Mm, really, at the beginning it's really hard because I was spoken, I was, I have been the only Colombian national that have been in a, in the, in the top high security prison in UK. And I was spoken the, 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 the top one as double A high rigs. And I was on, on, on my on my wing. There was only people who have um, natural life sentence. And, uh, and I was there when then. And my food was served through through the bars and every scene. And only they gave me 45 minutes every day to go into lying to lie into a box where you can get a, a bio sun and to get shower. And to make one phone call, you had to do the phone call in English. You cannot use uh, Spanish. And I would spend most of my time just reading, 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 reading. And you said, then, like, yeah. please continue. Say again, please. No, please continue. I, I thought I interrupted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I get I get moved to another uh, high security prison, um, north of England, very close to the Scottish uh, Sc Scottish border. And there, and there, I get I get um, into a wing where I get more more more, more able to be in the community, in the prison community. But there as well was only, only very hardcore criminals. And um, I spent my time, I went to um, education, I do many courses in, in prison, and I spent most of my time reading, reading. And after that, I get moved to, um, I will reduce my security was get reduced and I get to cut be prisoner, a standard a standard prisoner, and I get moved to a very good prison, private prison, where I met some friends, some Colombians, 
and I was able now to to share with them all the time. And then I met some uh, British gangsters, and there is where I get involved in a, another conspiracy from from inside. And the conspiracy, I won't get into it because it's a very interesting part of the book, but it's just when you think his story's over, uh, he gets caught up again. And um, uh, unfortunately for him, it didn't turn out turn out that well. Right. right? So we're, yeah, there's a lot of those extra stories in this book. So people go check it out. The Real Mr. Big. We're coming towards about 40 minutes. I mean, I'd just like to ask you a general question. What's your thought, Jesus, about all of the stories in the media, like Narcos, and the stories of the this kind of uh, entertainment kind of view towards Nikos. Do you have a feel? Uh, what do you feel about that? Do you have any impression or opinion about this kind of uh, the, the uh, Hollywoodization of the narco trafficking? I be at the beginning I say no, but now I say wow. I just gave impression yes because it's it's too much, especially the media. And even the police and everything, what they say, one, one the other. And I say, wow, I didn't know. I, did, I never realized that was that big and that was that, that magnitude. I, was, I thought I was a normal cocaine dealer. And I was doing my business. I was doing top. But when I realized that the cocaine, uh, the price grow up, uh, go up 50%, I say, wow. I was really doing big. And the demand was there. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a, the supply meets the demand. I don't know if it's the other way around, but uh, we're at 40 minutes, guys. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything you'd like to finish up with before we end the interview? Supply no, the only thing supply, uh, I was just going to say supply definitely meets uh, demand. As long as you have somebody uh, wanting uh, a drug, you're always going to have somebody uh, wanting to supply to supply it agreed and uh hey out of the business but it hasn't missed a beat it's still continuing i'm sure somebody just replaced him right yeah exactly hey Seuss, is there anything you'd like to add or anything that i missed that you'd like to finish with the uh, no i just want to there's many many things and many more in the book i would love people to have interest in the book to have a read in the book and thank you very much to all of you and to everyone. Um, love and respect and respect to every single person in this land. Great. Thank you. A very fascinating story. I definitely recommend this book. Where can people buy it, uh, Ron? Do you know? Is it? I know yeah, it's well, on Amazon. The best, the best place, of course, is uh, is Amazon. But it's in um, you know uh, bookstores in the, the UK and in the, in the United States, and uh, uh, you can uh, you know order it or 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 just go to Amazon and, and buy a copy. And what uh, is your social media? Where can people find your other books, Ron, if they're in Ron? Yeah, I get a website. I get a website. It's www.ronchepsick.com. I'm active on uh, on Facebook. They could connect to me if they want. I have uh, about 3,000 friends. And um, uh, I'm not big on Twitter. And uh, there's some stuff on, on me on, uh, on YouTube. Gotcha. And the last name is spelled C-H-E-P-E-S-I-U-K, Ron Chepsuk, lots of books. Right. And again, it's Jesus Ruiz Hanao, H-E-N-A-O. And the title of the book, again, is The Real Mr. Big, How a Colombian Refugee Became the United Kingdom's Most Notorious Cocaine Kingpin. 
Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Really fascinating book. Thank you for inviting us on. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye.